I'm Ingrid Delamar Kenny. I'm the CEO and founder of The Method. She's also my wife and she's the smartest woman I've ever met. First of all, she's my mom and she's really cool. She's all that and she's a superhero. Never mind CEO, she's gangster. This is the Pardon My French podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about wellness, fitness, Frenchism, and lifestyle, a Trey fucking chic gangster podcast. Hosted by fitness and wellness French hedonism guru and creator of The Method, The Body, yours truly, Ingrid Delamar Kenny, live from Monte Carlo, Monaco. On this show, you'll find a mix of audio entertainment, including listener and audience questions answered about health wellness, lifestyle, family, and relationships, and my French holistic tips to be healthy, have your best body, and transform both your body and your mindset into the happiest ever, as well as living la belle vie lifestyle like a chic French gangster. Hello, I am Ingrid Delamarcani and I am live from Villefranche-sur-Mer in a studio that was graciously lent to us by filmmaker Mary McGuckin. I am joined by Ifra Ahmed, my very anticipated guest that everybody's been waiting for. Thank you for joining us, Ifra. Thank you for having me. And we are joined by Leonie Karens. I hope I'm saying this right. She is Ifra Foundation Executive Director. Thank you for being here, Leonie. And I think it's amazing that you're here to shed some light on what we can do. Thank you for having us, Ingrid. So I'll get back to you in a little bit. Um, we have questions for you too, Leonie. Uh, but first, I'm very emotional to have you on. Um, for some reason... Um, When I heard your story, I heard it, of course, from Mary McGuckin, uh, who's become, I think, a very good friend of yours. Yeah. And uh, she told us about her project to make a movie about you, and that's how I heard your story. Um, and it touched my heart because I felt so stupid and ignorant and less of a woman not knowing um, the depth of what women like you Um, go through and have gone through um, so having the opportunity to have you on is a huge honor I am so impressed with what you've accomplished and with your fearless ways um, thank you again for being on thank you for having me really it's a great pleasure to be with you also um, I've educated my audience a little bit about you and um, told your story in my own words Uh, the best way that I could. I've done a little bit of my research, obviously. Um, today, you're an Irish citizen. Yes. You came in just a few years ago. This is not an old story. Um, and you seeked asylum. So you ran away from your country. Yeah, I left Somalia during the war. And that was in 2006. And I came to Ireland as a refugee. But now I'm Irish. I'm a very proud Irish citizen. You're a very proud Irish citizen. There are uh, actually pictures of you in, the, in some newspapers that I found um, with 
that beautiful smile of yours, being so proud at the ceremony to become a citizen. Um, I will speak to Leonie after. I, I'm so impressed with Ireland. I, I didn't know that they welcome people the way that they've welcomed you. <laughs> That's, you know, I think it's nice to start on that important note uh, because we got so many questions from people for you. And of course, some of the questions are from people that had no idea that this is happening and that this happened. Um, but others wanted to know what they can do. And seeing how proactive your government, Ireland, is, I think is, it needs to be explained. We need to know what countries act the same way as Ireland, what countries don't. Um, but for your part today, you're an Irish citizen. You feel safe, I'm sure. Yes, of course, I feel safe in Ireland and it's, uh, it's really, I was given a voice and if I didn't have the voice I was given, I wouldn't be able to become a campaigner or even raising the awareness I'm now a champion of, so very safe. What is your job today, before we get to your story? What do you do? Um, basically, I'm in Somalia. I'm yes. full-time activist working with women and girls who've been undergone on female genital mutilation. And I'm in Somalia to do a lot of awareness and also uh, doing um, lobbying with the federal government of Somalia to have a legislate on female genital mutilation, going to the villages in rural areas to meet with mothers and fathers and grandfathers who are basically uh, practicing on female genital mutilation, uh, explaining the risks of the, uh, the circumcision and telling them that the girl can die for bleeding during the cut and also the consequences she will have when she grows during her period or even uh, when when she get um, when she get um, marriage. Uh, you know, and wants to have children, wants to have uh, babies, and we talk about everything, and also uh, the health about um, kidney failures and other different type of uh, diseases that are risky during the circumcision because uh, female genital mutilation, when girls are going through, they do one scissors in nine to ten girls in once at the same time. At the same time, and what they do is they wash the scissors and all the things when they cut two, three girls, and then they do again with other girls. So they 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 pretty much only sterilize the blades every two to three girls. Yes, and then they do next, and then. Uh, I haven't seen anybody, but uh, people in health, they say that even the young girls are at risk to have uh, HIV AIDS and uh, other different diseases. But I never meet with anyone who being cut and who get uh, HIV AIDS. I, I always sit with women, but I meet with a lot of young girls who have, um, who have had a kidney failure. And also some of the young girls who I worked in Somalia, they died because of the uh, kidney failure. And because of the, the cut, basically, let me say a little bit about the cutting. Because yes. some people, they might not know what this cutting is. So this is I, I'm going to tell you what process I had to go through. I heard your story, I researched it, and then it's very easy to go, oh yeah, circumcised. You know, I told you I'm Jewish. So boys, you know, in my religion are circumcised. And it's a very um, sanitary and very medical procedure the boys in general my son was circumcised 
um, it, it was extremely safe. He cried for two seconds and I had to watch his, you know, um, his recovery for about a week and then it was absolutely fine and they find that boy circumcision is actually healthy and more hygienic. So when you hear this about women, first of all, you can't fend them. You go, where? What? What's being cut? Um, and people that listen to me, they know I'm going to go there because the ignorance is just not a possibility to today in 2019. Um, so if you don't mind, let's get graphic. Please explain to us. Yeah, uh, first of all, uh, when we talk about male circumcision, uh, it's not something it's related to Islam. You said yourself yes. that your, Jewish Jewish. And your child is, uh, your boy is uh, second set. You mentioned about the hygienic and also the health. Yeah. And that is uh, normal because a lot of um, Irish, even boys, they yes, do Americans as well. American does. So it's basically uh, the hygienic and also the health for the boys. Absolutely. But the girls are different because... Um, female genital mutilation is uh, removing the criteria and sewing back to the girls and it is type 1 and 2 and 3. Okay. But they're not different to me because they all remove everything and they sew it back and they will make a little hole that the girl can have um, a sexual intercourse. And it's not possible to have a sexual intercourse until she goes to hospital or reopens or... Oh my God. Especially... Especially when, basically, you know, when women get their period. Yes. The issue, the most issue that uh, affects the period is that there is no place that the period will come out. The, all the dirty stays inside. And that is one of the main thing causes the kidney failure. The kidney failure, yeah. yeah. And there is a lot of infection and different things. So um, if the young women are new or if they've been educated in terms of you know, if they can go back to hospital and they do reopen. Okay. So at least they will have space where the period can come out. And the normal course of nature can take place so you can clean your body out and your organs can function correctly. Yeah. So some of the girls, they might not be aware of that and they are risks of a lot of different things. So it's, it's really, uh, for me, they say type 1 and 2 and 3, but I don't see any different type because everything is cutting and, you know, sewing back together and yeah. making little hole for young girls to have, you know, we and that's it. So, and then also uh, one thing I want to make it clear is that a female genital mutilation has no in place in Islam. That's Scar very yeah. important. So cutting is not something, I read parts of the Quran, I was educated by parents that did not want us to be ignorant about other religions. Uh, also, my parents come from North Africa, so I'm part African like you. Um, you know, in my, in, and I'm very, very proud of these origins. So even though I'm Caucasian, people see me as a white girl, I consider myself North African. And I'm extremely proud of it. Uh, but the way that my parents educated me was to learn about all religions. And they come from a country, Morocco, where you know Islam and Judaism cohabitate in such peace and love so I read parts of the Quran and nowhere in the Quran do I read did I ever read about mutilation or violence so cutting is not something you find in the Quran no in female genital mutilation it has no place in Islam it's a cultural practice and if we think about it it's a um, 
Female genital mutilation, it came from Egypt in 500 years ago, and it's, you know, it's called the Fir'aun, if you Back to, you far, know, to Pharaoh, yeah. yeah Pharaoh. So it, it comes from Fir'aun, and in Egypt, the way it actually begins, uh, young has been cut. But if you look at the world, Somalia is one of the main countries where they practice 98% young girls undergone on female genital mutilation. And Egypt, they might have started, but then, you know, the numbers is high in Somalia. But also, there is non-Muslim uh, religion practice are also practicing on female genital mutilation because non-Muslim people are doing it. And when you look at North Africa and Absolutely not. West yeah. Africa, you know, there are other religious parts who are practicing. So that is one. And it's a culture practice. And how does it work and how people are passing on the culture is that, for example, mothers being cut and they think of, I was cut and my daughter have, got, have to go through. Should, should be cut. Yeah. So... It's like um, maybe angry mother who feel the pain and who have suffered uh, would say, no, it happened to me and my daughter have to have to face the consequence or have to, has to face. Has to, yeah, face the consequences. So that that is one of the main things drives mothers in terms of why they want the girls to be cut. And then also when you think of female genital mutilation, also the neighbors are much influenced with this with your society, the area Absolutely. and everything. Because, you know, it's a culture. It's and tradition. Exactly. And everybody is actually, they are influencing your own daughters to be cut. So if you were not to be cut, if your mother or your grandmother had refused to have you cut, would they be afraid that you would be excommunicated from your community? Uh, one, you know, uh, because of the girl, when she's eight, nine, basically the cut is started from zero to eight or eight to 11 to 12. So, um, for example, if the girl is not cut and she's playing other girls who have been cut, they will shame on her. Okay. They will say, you are not clean because you have not been cut. Um, even if she goes play with them, they will tell her not to play with her because she, or if, you know, it's basically it's a, uh, people are mixing the religion and the culture. I totally understand yeah. that, and I think it's so important that you drew the, the line and made the difference. Yeah, um, because you know, we work with the religious leaders yes. in Somalia, and religious leaders are coming out and speaking out against it and Absolutely. saying this is, has not in, in place in Islam, and they yeah. say it should not be practiced. But it's like passing on the culture, something that happened over 500 years back, and you know. My grandmother did, my my mama, and then my sisters, and then us, and you know, even now the young generation they're doing to their child because right. this is what they believe. You don't sound angry anymore. Well, you know, um, <laughs> there was a time I was angry and really upset with everything, but now what I can do is to make a change and make a difference. And because, you know, like I, I, there was a time I feel so angry and upset and I feel like, you know, this was not right and it should, it should not be happening anyway. And then I felt that, you know, I was, I was so actually upset with the community and I didn't want to do anything because it should not happen. You're too busy being upset very often. It's hard to be proactive when you're angry. 
Yeah, it's, and then also crying because I feel if I cry and get angry, my message will not go, uh, will not come across with anybody. So I decide not to be upset anymore and not to actually um, be angry with anybody, but to become friends. So at least if I speak out, I can save young girls to go through on female genital mutilation. So I become friends with the fathers, mothers, grandmothers, all families, and then we have an open conversation, we talk about the issue, we say don't practice and you know, if you practice this is what can happen to your child and all that. So uh, my I take my anger away from me to just help and to be you know voice. save a young girls to go through female genital mutilation and become the voice because that was one thing very important to me. And there was um story about little girl that always when I talk it come across to my heart because it was first time I fly to the village where the little girl died. Her name is was Deka, ten years old, and Deka was cut and she died for bleeding. She was bleeding for three days or two days, and Deka lost her life. And then I went to the village. I meet with the mother, and then I meet with the whole family: mother, grandmother, and then father and also grandfather and I started speaking with them. Father and he didn't. to be clear, they were all devastated by the loss of their daughter. They don't wish for girls to lose their lives over this. No, but right? it's, uh, they believe strongly the culture. Yeah. So even though I remember when I went to the village, I spoke with the mother and she said, this is my culture and it's okay, I practice. And then I asked her, now you lost your daughter, is it something you're going to be doing? She said she will do if she have another daughter. But one thing that my head was still questioning was when I asked, because, you know, usually in the rural area, they have a little hood. They right. build the little home that where they cut with all the six girls or ten girls and they will stay in this home for 40 days because they tie their legs together. I knew this, but I'm going to make you repeat it so people can get some graphic idea of what happens. I, I knew this, obviously. Okay. Um, I met you on Sunday, so um, I, I'm a little bit more educated than my audience when it comes to this at this point. Um, so there's a little hut, which yes. is where the ritual happens. So it's And it's almost like a festive ritual. Yeah, for the family, because the you family. see... Um, because I asked Deca's mother, I was like... Why? Because she built the little home and then Deca and the other sister, they were there for the... 40 days. But not because Deca didn't make Died it. Died after two, three days. After yeah. three days. But the mother actually destroyed the house when Deca oh, died. Okay. And you know, that made me, made me so sad. But same time, she said she will do if she has a daughter. So that it actually made me that, you know, the mother was not really educated herself what the right. practice was. But, you know, she strongly traditionally believed this. Even I asked her clothes. I asked her, where is Deca's clothes? Because I want to see what kind of clothes she wears, uh, she what was. kind of person she was. So she said she threw it away the clothes. And I asked her, why did you do that? And she said, because I lost my daughter. So now question I ask myself is that if the mother is saying she lost her daughter, but at the same time she believed the practice, it's a very strong related on a, in, on a cultural um, Yeah, There's a belief. disconnect somewhere there for sure be, between the right to feel as a mother and being afraid of 
your culture in a way you know it's it's very often i think when things are supposed to be driven by religion but it's more tradition than religion it's usually driven by fear yeah and i think that they're scaring those moms and those grandmothers like if you don't do it this is what will happen to your daughter yeah um so it that is that was it and then also again i met with the father but the father couldn't talk and the other thing i was shocked is that the father took the deca to hospital but when he took to hospital deca did not have the blood so the hospital asked the father to donate the blood but the father didn't actually answer the question he was asked can you please donate the blood to your daughter because she lost a lot of blood he didn't say yes and he didn't say no and that also was something really stuck in my head because he's a father and he take the child to hospital but same time I believe if maybe he donate the blood or if he support his daughter to be given blood transfusion he, she might be safe by now or she might be alive but he didn't and that also was something that I I feel so angry about because you know strongly people believed and then that was really hard case for me because as a young girl I've been going through female genital mutilation myself and I remember when I was sitting on the plane I was just keep thinking about this little girl and just keep thinking about myself how it happened and what happened to me and how I was one of the nine girls one of us there's a one of the girls I've been through cutting she died because of um, the one that was in the hut with you you guys were a few that day yeah, one of them died she died so all that has come to my head and I was just keep thinking and I was you know till I get off the plane everything was coming back was the memory of what happened to me and then meeting with the family the whole my my feeling has changed because I need mother who lost daughter and who still believe that the practice is normal it's to do scary. so it was so scary it's scary and that death won't put a stop to it even even the deep love that parents can I do believe that those parents in Somalia and in other countries they do love their kids they do but this you know culture is um, sometimes is is trouble our head and it's, it's just stronger. very strong and then you know because of that little girl we lost and we showed on all TVs and radios and me- social media basically um another family members they brought their child when they came to hospital because they were scared she might die like that so last year Deca died last year July and then September I remember I was in Morocco I swear actually uh, with my colleagues and we were on holiday when I get phone calls in Somalia was told that there was a many different girls was brought to hospital and they need help so as the Ifra Foundation I based in Somalia working on this and what I did is calling hospitals in the villages asking them if they could support saving the girls from you know uh giving them whatever support they can so we lost the seven girls including Decker last year okay but we saved the 20 girls by talking about Decker's death no by helping them actually you know facilitating the hospitals and being given blood transfusions and all that and then also uh, I did a documentary after Decker's story I really wanted to go back with why the mothers they feel this is was very important to bring their child to hospital so um I meet with some of the mothers that who brought their daughter to hospital and they talk about what made them to bring it and all they had a one answer 
and that was I didn't want my daughter to die the way they had died. Okay. And not only that, the other thing is, um, how did you know about Deca? They say we heard about the radio, we heard about people. That's amazing. You know, in the shops, in the markets, people in the shop, they talk about it. There was a one lady in particular, we asked her, how do you know about it? And she said, I was in the market buying some stuff, and I heard that there is a little girl, she died on FGM for bleeding in one village, and then um, she said, when I come back, I was telling others. So the talk is like a rope. It's, it's movies around. So that's the awareness that you brought on. So I feel like for you, in a way, the awareness you were able to bring about Deca's death and just bringing the children to the hospital, those girls to the hospital, if something was to happen during their healing period, is already kind of half the fight, half the battle that's one in a way like maybe you cannot get them yet to stop the practice completely but at least get them to the hospital should infection or anything like that occur yeah because you know at least even now people are aware of that if they leave they try to bleed a long time she can die so people are bringing them to hospital which it helps because you know if it was my choice and if it was something I can make a decision, I would not really allow the youngest to go through on of this course, horrible but if practice. You can't stop it. Yeah, but at least you know we in a good position, saying at least the mothers are a little bit aware of it, what to do, and they just thinking of going to hospital at least if they see the girls is bleeding. So. A lot of people asked me. And, you know, it's very typical when there's an issue like this that we need to be talking about. We always wonder who's the bad guy? Who, who do we direct? I don't want to say our anger because you're proving to us, you're a perfect example that it's not about being angry, it's about speaking up and making the right kind of noise. And, you know, being angry is not the way. But everyone wants to know who is to blame. So... We wondered if it was the moms, but you're explaining to us right now that the moms are not the ones we should be angry with. They're not the ones we should... You, you think we should be talking to them and educating them, which is what you're doing. Yeah, basically. But who's the bad guy in this? I think there is no bad guy because, you know, it's a cultural practice and it's something that... Um, for example, for me, I grew up wearing hijab since I was a baby. Yes. And I love my hijab wearing it and I feel, you know, it's beautiful and it all is. that. So I grew up to actually keep my hijab on. So this culture practice, we grow up into it. And it's something that we carry on with us. And that is, you know, uh, there is no win-win or yeah. there is no lose-lose. It's just for, we need to educate the mothers. How and does the Somalian government feel about cutting today? Well, you know, uh, before I got to Somalia, there was no actually awareness or anybody speaking about FGM and people was very and people was yeah and also people did not want to hear about but uh, I opened the conversation from the community to religious leader with the leaders and now um, at least they, there is a conversation about you know um, FGM to be legislated in Somalia and again um, the legislation for me is good but it's only celebration of you know uh, celebration of what we can do so um, it's really, we're not there It's evolved. 
but it's, it's getting there. Yeah, it's getting there. Like, that's what I, I'm understanding. And Leonie, I have to ask you too about that. But I'm understanding that it's kind of like a victory already that we can get those parents to get the kids to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, people in even the States, in the UK, and like in, in our countries today, um, think that it's always like a one, you know, one victory, one solution that's going to wipe it all out. And like you're saying, it's so deeply engraved in the culture that it's not just going to disappear and vanish but if they could even get it to happen in hospital right rather than in those huts if they really had to do it you're opening my my mind i would have coming into this room to interview you i didn't think i would say that i would say i I want you know female genital mutilation to stop but you just made me understand that perhaps it can't just stop you know it's so deeply um, embossed in the culture but if they could evolve with it and you know like we spoke about circumcision for boys now it's done in hospitals in the states for non-religious reasons for example I think in Ireland as well yeah. if they could perform those those in you know in hospitals and minimize the trauma the death the you know if if they cannot evolve further they can go as fast as we want to go as far as abolishing it are you hoping to abolish it at some point yeah basically uh, we have the united Nations resolution 2030 that fgm is ended globally so so that's the goal 2030 yeah, to abolish it yeah would it be a crime would it become a crime at that point basically europe it is a crime okay it's um for even france is 14 years in prison i think uh, anybody practice on female genitalization yeah so i i mean like it's it's not really lifetime but it's uh, you know at least the doing at least it's punishable by yeah now. so um uk same ireland the same other european countries you know uh, fgm is is illegal and nobody illegal. could so practice. ireland is not the on, the only country where legislations were passed no, but Ireland is the best, uh, first champion on Europe for uh, campaigning on practice. That's because they have you as a consultant. <laughs> they have me as an activist. They have you as an activist, but, uh, you know, I I saw and read that the president credited you for bringing so much awareness in Ireland. You're a superstar over there. Um, and I think you need to really let me say a superstar when you're an activist you know gaining the type of awareness that you have is you know something that's respectable it's not about being a movie star it's you know being a star in activism and that's how i introduced you to my audience thank you and thank you for indulging me as i saw you saw it and you didn't say anything and you're quite humble um but you know being a star in activism means that you have a very very loud voice and you've educated me certainly and now you're educating a whole new kind of audience i hope that will make a difference i want to ask you some questions that you know my audience asked Um, but before we do i have one more questions i want to go back to and before i ask that question is there when we ask you this obviously painful things you know it's painful memories and we want to be sensitive to it but when I asked you, you said there are three types of different mutilations. And for you, there's no grades. They're all horrible mutilations. One equals the other, whether they're cutting more or less. Um, were you able, are women that, you know, end up in countries like Ireland or France, 
are you able to reverse part of the mutilation medically? Yeah, there's, uh, there's a Dr. Peter, he's actually, I think the clinic is in Berlin. Yeah, but uh, I meet with the doctor in, in Paris, basically, and there is a possibility to reverse it. Yeah, but I didn't do it. They asked me if I want to do it, then they said, we will help you. I, I wasn't going to ask you if you did it, because no, I but think that's they, very invasive. But they but asked me. It's nice that there's hope like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a, yeah, no, definitely. The doctor, they say if I want to do it, they would do it, but I didn't want to do it because, you know, is is coming from pain and going to another pain really redo and do it again is just you know I understand like, I can understand that yeah. that would put you in a situation where you probably don't even want to go into yeah but myself again. I keep in track with the gynecologist and you know I help myself in different ways but yeah there is a possibility so here's the question how does this affect you said it affects kidneys which makes complete sense if the course of your period cannot go as it's naturally supposed to. How does it affect your hormones? Are you able to have... Is a woman who has undergone uh, female genital mutilation, is she able to have a normal hormonal cycle? Is she able to have children normally? Is she able to exist normally as a woman? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, basically, you know, when it comes to having the period, there is a lot of pain and... Women are different. It depends how they cut and how they sew it back for the whole things. And some women, they have period for whole three days on being in bed and being sick and being so much in pain. And also, uh, it affects one mother having a baby because she can die for bleeding. Of course. And it happens. And you know, fistula. Women, when they try to give birth and they cut widely and then... Yeah. They are risking not to have a baby again, or they are, they are risking losing I their womb and all that. I mean, when I had my firstborn, and that's normal, and that's surgically healthy, they had to cut me a little bit to for, for him to come out. And that alone to me, I mean, my son's 20 today, and I'm still kind of a little bit traumatized by it. You know, just the thought of it, I could still feel the pain that I felt, and because it's, it's, they don't have time to do anesthesia and stuff, but... And it's done with all the love. You're bringing a baby into the world. It's a doctor doing it. And, you know, it's in within your rights. And the, the pain, just the, the physical pain. So I can just imagine, you know, the, the pain. The the, do you feel that this is done for control of, over your sexuality? Um, well, you can say somehow because um, some of the culture believes they say that if women are not cut they can go above having mm -hmm. sex and you know playing around and all that but that is not true there's a million women around the world who are not cut yeah. who are living and living their normal life so yeah there is also a part of saying uh, women she might go and you know have sex around so yeah it's part of it but it's such an abomination because in Somalia, when I read your story and in other countries like Somalia where cutting is practiced, a lot of these women are getting raped as well, have gotten raped. So how do they, you know, tie up the two in a moral way? 
you're in a country where you, where you you get raped so easily and at the same time they're practicing cutting to prevent a woman from having sexual intercourse with someone else than the husband that she's meant to marry it really is very difficult because uh, we also do little campaign i mean like not little but we 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 we've been so loud being advocating for gender based violence because uh, sexual violence became really more central in Somalia because of the war and also um, last three four months the youngest were very much at risk on being raped with knife because oh man could actually cut her off a knife and then so rape they can her. Rape them. Yeah, yeah. so it was a lot of things happening and we 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 just there to advocacy and you know speaking on public and telling and I was so angry last month, uh, there was a little girl, she died because she was raped. And I was so angry because nobody's doing anything and young women are being raped. And I said, look, we have to do something. But so you have also, and you've spoken up about it without shame. You, yeah. You said what you've gone through. Yeah. But the, you see, the thing is that people in Somalia, they, they don't have the voice and they cannot speak. So I said, okay, I have to bring young girls together. And then we said we were going to do scissor campaign because I wanted to have the lady to carry scissor. But it was very um, violent it's because harsh. I was so angry. It's harsh. Then I said, you know what? We have, because somebody grew a green chili. So I said, like, every woman should smash a green chili Sorry. and put water and have a bottle and just fight, you know, yeah. take that as a fight. Yeah. Like pepper spray. <laughs> yeah, like pepper spray. So I w that's what I said again. And it, it really worked because people were talking about it and they said, are you serious? This is, I said, this is possible. So that could be a, like a self-defense weapon? Yes. Yeah. I like so, that. You should do it. So it's green chili is what's grown in Somalia. We did debate on it. And then <laughs> the whole Somali TV, they were there and they supported and everybody welcomed. So, um, because, you know, Somali, we are not good on karate. Yes. And women are not much doing much sport. So we have to find a way they can defend. So maybe when I go back, we will think about way it's really easy women to defend because nowadays rape become just part of the life. I would have thought rape would be kind of less today than when you left Somalia and you're telling no, me that no, it's, it's worse. actually worse because you know there's a lot of militias who have gone and just going yeah. around and all that so we have now, to I'm gonna ask you some of the questions um, that were sent in for you um, but first I'm gonna read you one from um, let me see her name Danielle so Danielle Kalari asked you hello from New York um, I'm not sure if this is too late to ask, but it's not too late because she's on now. Um, so Danielle is wondering if you get comments from people saying mutilation is like a boy being circumcised and how do you deal with ignorant comments like that? She also says it's truly heartbreaking to hear about this practice that goes on in the world. Um, and she said to convey her admiration to you. She said, please convey my admiration to Ifra for being such a strong woman. How do you deal with ignorant comments? Um, we just have to move on and just keep going. And sometimes you get angry, when, especially men who are the lawmakers and they tell yeah. you, oh, why you don't talk about this is normal, let the women be cut, you get so angry. But at the same time, 
you have to deal with and you have to control your anger and say look you will achieve what you're looking for so keep going yeah if i if i learned anything today and you taught me a lot you're teaching me that being angry is definitely i mean if you're not angry then i definitely shouldn't be angry and i i have to say i came in a little angry for two reasons your story you know it angers me that this happens still i mean i'm reading in the millions uh i read and Leone, you'll correct me if I'm wrong after, or you can correct me, but I read that today there's 200 million women that have been cut in mm -hmm. the world, and there's more than, if I'm not wrong, 30 million women, is that it, that are still being cut as we speak, young girls and women. That makes me angry. And what makes me angrier is that when I started talking about this podcast a week ago, when you and I started connecting on Instagram, I met Mary, um, the day before and we went to have a salad together here in Villefranche and, and she told me, you know, I knew about your story for a long time with her project with the film she's making about you um, and I, of course you get angry when you hear this but what made me angry is for a week I started building awareness and telling people about your story I wanted them to be educated listeners an educated audience about you having seen your face I've posted pictures of you and I was angry when I said, ask Ifra questions, and I got like six questions, where usually when I say, ask me any questions you want about, you know, my skin routine, or about my hair, or about, you know, how many meals I have in a day, and there I get like a thousand questions. It made me so angry that women were so afraid to ask you, and so I took it to a like on Instagram, and I was so mad and I was like are you fucking kidding me sorry excuse my French are you not gonna ask this woman questions are you gonna turn your your head away from the reality and at that point and I have a tribe of amazing women they said Ingrid don't be angry we're afraid we're scared of asking the wrong question. That's true. And <laughs> at that point, we started getting amazing questions. So uh, no, that is the reality. Because you know, if forget about the public. When you even look at the leaders, where we advocacy on the campaign, they also, you know, people they turn away and they say, "Oh, this is their own." But yeah, it's not our own anymore. It's about it's the girls. It's, it can be your neighbors. It can be your your daughter's school, one who's going there, it can be anybody, it's ca it can be the one you're sitting on the bus with. You so know? are you telling me that in countries like France, countries like Ireland or the United States, there are girls that are being cut? Mm -hmm. Yes. It's still happening? It is happening. It, even it happened in Ireland, in America, in UK, anywhere, but it's... Uh, it's not uh, something that people speak about. It's silent practice. So nobody would say it because they know it's illegal and the people are still doing it. So are you saying they take out those girls out of school for yes. 40 days and tie their legs the same way in America, in Ireland, in France when they practice it? They will take, because there is a holiday. There is a Christmas okay. holiday, there is a, a summer oh holiday. God. and. Those are the most risky time that to actually cut the young girls, especially when they're not in school, when they're born and when they're still at home. Can you imagine that 99% of us listening to you, listening to this podcast, have no idea that maybe Christmas time is the most dangerous time in a civilized country like the United States or France or Italy for girls to be cut? Mm -hmm. This is making a huge difference to know that. Um, I'm going to ask you another question. 
um, if a girl refuses to go through with it, is her life in danger by her family and community? This question is by Caroline. Um, it is. Basically, I remember when I was first cut, I, I tried to run away, but I couldn't run away. Did you know I was coming? Um, no, because nobody tells you, but when exactly time comes, you know there is a girl being cut and you can hear the screaming and crying and all that. But um, yeah, young girls, they, some of the young girls, they ran away and then they were brought it back or they were cut and there is no way skip. There's no way out. No way out, no. That's horrible. Um, somebody asked, are there herbs? I asked you this question before, but I really want your answer on the podcast. Are there herbs and salves that can help the girls heal faster? Do the girls have access to that for healing? No, because you know, their child when they cut and also, uh, they are tied their legs together for 40 days in being in, in, in a room, dark room and that's it. And also and they lay on their side and they can only pee. Yes. And uh, there is some very traditional herbs, but it's actually to help with the, you know, uh, sewing or... The anesthesia. Uh, it's yes, an anesthetic. To, to close numb. it properly. Yeah. So, but uh, Africa, traditionally, African people don't use that much herbs, like uh, China and, you know, other parts of the world. India, they do a lot of herbs, but yeah. Somali don't use... I mean, like Africa, I don't think they use a lot of herbs. So Morocco uses, uh, yeah, they have remedies, herbal remedies, but like you said, not as much, remedies. I think, as China. So there's really nothing that they use to heal. No. They just wait the 40 days and hope that everything will go well. Yeah. Um, somebody wrote, and I, this will be a question for Leonia as well, but um, besides bringing awareness, is there anything we can do to help the girls and women? Um, there is a lot of ways they can get involved, but I leave it to Leonie we'll to answer. We'll give it to Leonie to answer. You're already doing a great job at that. I wasn't aware that you went back to Somalia so often. I knew that you had gone back and you'd seen your father and your grandmother again, that you had gone to uh, a town, knew that you had met with families, but I didn't think you did this Yay. as <laughs> much as you do. Like when I asked you what do you do today, you said, I'm in Somalia. I didn't realize. Are you safe in Somalia today? Well, I am not, but you know, at the same time, I believe if I can help one girl to save her life, I'm, I'm happy to be there. So do people threaten you? A lot. I mean, like, in, it, it is because, you know, we have um, Al-Shabaab who is, um, and not only that, there's a lot of other issues that around being activists and being the boys. They don't want you to speak up. Yeah, so it's it can be anybody. So I I try to be safe myself uh, most of the time because I take the responsibility myself to be there and work for the girls. And I remember when we were at the panel on Saturday, there was this man, he came to me and he said to me, Ifra, uh, you're doing great work. I, because I was on a panel on uh, the rap women, the, the, rap, rap, the rap women. And he came to me and he said, Ifa, are you safe in Somalia? I say, uh, I am trying to be safe. And he said, please, the world needs you. And I little agree. girls needs you. And he said, please, if you ever feel you're in danger, come back to the country you belong to. So I was so happy. And, uh, yeah, I think you have a responsibility to be okay for a really long time. Yeah, so, because uh, there aren't too many people that are willing to do this. Leonie, do you go back? 
I'm no, I'm based in Ireland. So the foundation that IFRA established a number of years ago has kind of a unique setup insofar as IFRA does a lot of work uh, in Somalia, both directly with the government and with community and individuals on the ground. But she's very much supported and backed up by a strong foundation, which is a registered charity in, in Ireland. I'm going to speak to you in a little bit. I want you to educate audiences from different countries on what they can do. There are Americans that said, is there a congressman that can, we can write to? Or, you know, what steps should we take to bring any awareness politically into our countries or our districts or our states? So I definitely want to take like 10 minutes of your time in this podcast to educate us but also tell us how we can be proactive you know is there a fund that we can donate to although i find that just donating and then you know going on with our little life might not be enough is there something else we can do to also make if not our voice louder ifra's voice louder great for sure well ifra um i had i had wanted to interrupt maybe once or twice ifra is very modest and doesn't you know doesn't um really like to speak about the level of work that, that she does and what she's achieved so far. So she does quite a lot of work with the um, with the Somali government and has brought along or has developed a national action plan for the elimination of FGM in Somalia, which has taken an incredible amount of work from IFRA and the foundation over the last four years. So that piece of work has been really to identify the best ways of of eliminating FGM in Somalia, taken from other countries who've had lots of successes. So in other countries where it's practiced, there have been interventions that have brought an end to the practice. So the foundation has taken a lot of that and also done its own research on the ground and brought together this this action plan on how to how to tackle it in Somalia. Now that said, the foundation is is relatively new and quite small. We're still in the process of developing people sometimes ask me how many people are there how many of you work for the foundation and i say 2.2 so if that is is full-time and i came on full-time just last november so just seven months ago and then we have another great great colleague who's coordinated and done a lot of that uh, that research and policy work for us so in terms of support we'd really like any support that people feel moved to to give us you can find us on facebook and twitter and instagram you can also come on our website where you can read in more depth maybe about the work that we're doing and the, the plans that we have going forward. It's the going to be linked on the show notes. So pretty much with a podcast, I know that uh, I, I think that Ifra said she hasn't done podcasts before, maybe did one before. But the great thing about a podcast is that it has great placement on Google which today is so important to awareness. Um, and in the show notes for our listeners, they can go on there and they have clickable links. So we will link your Twitter account, we'll link your Facebook accounts for the foundation, obviously, and more importantly, the website and how everyone can help as far as making donations, especially if it's just the two of you. Um, I understood that you met Ifra much longer than you've worked for the foundation. You guys met she said in if i'm saying this right the refugee um foundation or association like how did you guys meet yeah so just before i came to work for the foundation i spent a little over 12 years working for a human rights based migrant support organization in ireland so i was already working in the sector but if and i met in 2012 so 
yeah. is that seven years ago? And that so. was the United Nations the commission. Now he is, he was that uh, UNHCR uh, commissioner. That's right, Antonio, who is now the um, Secretary General of the United Nations. Yeah. At the time, he was uh, working with the EU Commission, and he came to Ireland to speak to us about the issues faced by refugees uh, and migrants living in Ireland. So that's how we how we met. So yeah, it is a it is a very long time ago. Ifra was really just starting out on her kind of campaigning and advocacy at the time, and I have watched very much in awe and admiration over the the years, and I'm feeling you know very very privileged and very uh, very lucky to have the opportunity to to work with her and to work so closely with her and to be inspired every day. She's just like you said. There's no anger. There's a real. Uh, desire to make a change and to to make the lives of so many other children you know much much better and to take away the risk of them being mutilated uh, maybe just to come back to your statistics you're absolutely right yeah. well done you did some great research in such a short time so uh, the the numbers of people of children at risk and and girls being mutilated is really really significant and does continue while progress is being made in um reducing the 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 country uh, countries where fgm is practiced and the prevalence that is going down but the population is growing so the numbers of women at risk or the numbers of children at risk is effectively increasing and then there was another uh, part that i wanted to come back to you were saying about the prevalence in um countries of origin of many of your listeners yeah. So Occidental countries were... Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. I'm not exactly sure about the figures in the US, but I, from the top of my head, I think there are about 140,000 girls at risk in the US. It is certainly a practice that takes place in, in developed countries, in our countries. And you're absolutely right, contacting one's local congressmen and their politicians is a very good way to, to go about it locally. Um, I know that there are many states in the US who have strong legislation against FGM, but there are also a few who do not. And there are some states where that uh, legislation is being eroded. There have been some decisions recently which have caused the legislation to be diluted in, in some states in the US. What I want to do, and you'll tell me if this is the right way to go about it, because my audience is, I want to say, maybe 88% American. Uh -huh. I think that I'm half American. I'm going to do my homework before we publish the show notes, and I'm going to go look at which state doesn't have strong legislation and perhaps urge the audiences from these states to you know, reach out to their congressmen and ask for a change what, what do you think about that you you can you can come in if if you have something to say no because uh do you remember they say do you remember they state that rejected the fgm bill uh, which state is that there was one recently i don't know we have to find on the internet yeah. so i that's what i said i'm gonna do my homework and go look on the internet which states haven't proactively decided to make a difference yet and, and the funny thing is they dropped the case that the family who was uh, recently accused being cutting their daughter in the u.s and maybe I also just to give a thing. shout out to our colleagues there yeah, is a there is a u.s and fgm network which you can easily find on the 
on the internet and that is a network of organizations working to end FGM in the US. So if you go onto the network website, the end FGM US network website, you'll find um, contact details for organizations all over the US who are working on this issue. So that might also be a good port of call. Good to know. It's I'm going to definitely do some more homework. I think it's it's worth it. Um, I hope you'll be invited on more podcasts and on more, you know, I want to say non-political podcasts. My, my platform is, I said to you, it may be a little bit shallow for you because we talk beauty, we talk fitness, but we also talk really serious women health and women empowerment and you fit right in. I think you're probably my most powerful story. Um, <laughs> not mine, but when one of the women's issues that I've, I've brought on that is the most powerful and definitely one of insane awareness um i have people that have sent you actually some beautiful messages uh one of them said no question for me please just let ifra know that i think she's so strong and brave and thank her for being the voice of so many that have gone through this very unfortunate situation more people need to hear these stories and she should be so very proud of herself for coming fo- forward. Power to her. And this is by Purely Me on Instagram. Um, and I think she just voiced how we all feel about you and your strength um, and what you're doing, your mission. So yes, please stay safe because it seems you have a lot, a lot more to accomplish. Can you give us from the top of your head, just for a little more awareness, Somalia is not the only country where um, the practice is so prominent. Um, I know there are countries in Asia as well. Um, can you just give us a few more countries where this is happening, just so we know? Yeah, in Egypt and also uh, Senegal, Gambia, um, Nigeria, Kenya, especially Masaya. The, the, you know, reason I say Masaya is that Masaya is a very well-known tribe that actually wears big earrings and, you know, I, beautiful color and yes, all that. Yes, I've seen people go, you know, people put a lot of their travel on Instagram and I've seen people taking pictures with those gorgeous women with this amazing jewelry and, you know, that's the only reason why I know them. Now you travel with people through Instagram and their pictures very often. Yeah, so there is um, a lot of countries do practice Africa. It's fifty-eight percent, fifty-eight countries. Fifty-eight is it? Fifty-eight countries or fifty-six countries? And the world lot. practice. It's Asia is Africa, Asia, Middle East. They also do practice. So it's it's really a lot. Um, I can't find the question again, but somebody asked. And if it's overstepping, just tell us. But they say, do you still have the ability to worry? And I, I know, not worry, but I've seen you. You wear makeup, you, you smile, you wear beautiful hijabs. I've seen you the other day with a gorgeous hijab. It had all these pearls on it. But they're saying, are you still able to, you know, look into your wellness, your beauty? Do you still want to fall in love? Do you want to get married? Do you want to have kids? They're wondering if what you've gone through or what these girls go through, does that amputate you of all these things a girl just wants? They want to know if you still want to be a girl, in a way. I think every girl wants to be a girl. <laughs> <laughs> and look little, you know, princess. And uh, for me, basically, you know, I am 
I'm different because that's what a lot of people say is because I don't really allow my smile, my beauty and everything I have, my anger to take it away. And I let it go all that. And again, I think I remember during the film about the girl from Mogadishu, um, you know, they looked on the internet and find a lot of different uh, pictures of myself yeah. and makeup. And, I you found know. gorgeous pictures of you. And I was like, I want to know where she got these earrings and I want to know where she got that <laughs> lipstick. You made me want to wear an hijab when I saw your fashion show. This some yeah. gorgeous one. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> That is why I really I love I love what I wear I love. So you um, haven't lost your femininity. No, I did not. I mean, like you know, it's and I see a lot of women who does and who did, and I yeah. always give them talk and I always talk to them and I say, listen, uh, if you think of uh, if you think of what's gonna happen to young girls that who are born and who are actually are raising now. And if you lose yourself, which means you cannot help those girls That's in the future. So, so I actually, that is why. And also I get inspired for all my beauty clothing and all that meeting with all lot of, you know, amazing women around the world and going different conferences and seeing a lot of beautiful people. And I actually, I love I love dressing up and wearing different scarves and wearing big earrings. Even I wear my scarf, I still have my earrings and I show them actually. And I love fashion. I I love, you know, You're a girl. I love being a, you know, a <laughs> I love being a and girl. I love and, that. And yeah. I think it's, it's so perfect to end it with the big smile on our face, even though you, you teared up, you made me tear up. I think I'm still about to tear <laughs> up. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're like in this room here and we're three different women, but we're just girls. Yeah. And I love that. You, you're doing a great job at making us less angry and more determined to make a difference. And to me, that is the embodiment of what a woman of today is. You're one of those modern women. Take your anger to post it. You make a change for the world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. And Leonie, I want to thank you so much for coming on my podcast uh, and helping us with understanding a little bit more about um, female genital mutilation. Uh, I'm so sorry that I have to say the words rather than the initials. I feel like the impact is so much more when you actually speak out the words Um, and you've shed so much light for us. I want you to repeat and explain to us exactly what we can do before I let you go to help stop, you know, FGM. Um, And what can we do to help you guys? Okay, well, let me start maybe, Ingrid, by thanking you again, you know, just to add to what Ifris said, it's it's really important to, to spread the word and get the word out there that, this is, you know, this is a really relevant and and um, and timely issue. There are, like you said, two hundred million women who are, who are affected, and you know, Ifra is very is very modest. She hasn't, uh, I suppose, articulated maybe the 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 breadth of the work that she does from you know national and international advocacy to a lot of work on the ground, directly educating and empowering women themselves in their communities so I suppose what people can do is you know sometimes people ask me 
well, how many of you are there in this foundation? And my response is 2.2. So effectively, <laughs> there is uh, IFRA full time and myself just since November, so a little over seven months. We have another colleague who does work on policy and research. And we we were blessed with a very committed and um, hardworking and supportive board of directors who work on a voluntary basis. These uh, directors all have their own lives and businesses and and jobs. So so they they do support us. Um, At at the moment, we, we are doing a outreach and looking for financial support we do absolutely need donations we need to build up the foundation's capacity we need to bring some more people on to do more of the work that we do on the ground in Somalia um so any any support there would be really appreciated we'd also really like if people could support us on social media um obviously on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And for donations, it's it's a really easy process from our website. If you just click on to ifforfoundation.org, that's O-R-G, um, you'll find a donate button there on, on the first page. I've actually donated and it was very easy to do so. Um, I think that, you know, as harsh as it is to mentioned needing financial support it is a reality ifra needs to travel to somalia to bring awareness to help those families the way that the way that she has um the idea has come up in my head as we were recording this uh in the last few days i've been kind of um talking to my audience about bringing on a new product which is kol, which is for the eyes and comes from morocco a lot of african and, and arab women wear that and it's like you know it's from ancient times even egyptian women and i made the correlation when when uh, ifra was talking about egypt i i didn't know if i should bring this product on and i, I did a tutorial you know we were all about beauty um, and people said yeah yeah bring it on and as ifra was talking and as you're talking i'm thinking I want to bring it on now just to attach it to the cause and give some of the proceeds to IFRA Foundation uh, for the time that it will be on the market. And I think that will be a great way to support you guys. Well, that is extremely generous. Thank you, Ingrid. And again, you know, well, thank you also for your for your donation. That's a real case of you know, putting your money where your mouth is. So so thank you. It's very much appreciated. And thank you also for, you know, for bringing the awareness and for, I guess, for recognizing the work that that the foundation does. It it is a difficult topic. It's very, you know, emotionally charged. Uh, If we've spoken a little here about her, her own experience and and the, the physical pain, the psychological pain associated with it. So, you know your support makes the makes the work and much much easier so thank you it's really an honor to be able to even get to know you guys in real life i have to say there's a whole um hangover that's you know that that's attached to it like since i've met ifran sunday i've been kind of immersed in this whole cause you know on a on a more personal level when you can put a face to you know something like this which i think this is what i'm trying to say to my audience like you can't put a face on it you don't know anybody it's happened to so it's not really happening that's really very often what happens Uh with things like this Uh Um, but i've met her i got to know her story 
I got to watch her story. Um, and at this point, there's a whole, you know, hangover that comes with that where emotionally I feel drained. I could just imagine what it's like for her. I can just imagine what it's like for you when you hear of the death of a little girl, like she was mentioning last month. And yeah, putting your money where your mouth is, is so important. We will support you on Instagram. I know my audience is already so tickled and so emotionally touched. I've gotten so many messages and I hope you guys do too. I know that Ifra is on the account and she answers the messages as well. Um, so I really hope that everybody will support you on social media because that's really where the voice is the loudest at this point, even with the younger generations. And we will post on the show notes every single link to make it easy to support you guys. Um, I've done some research um, and I will be doing more research before I post the show notes uh, when, when the show goes live uh, about the states that need some more of a push, you know, mm -hmm. on a congressional standpoint, like writing to your congressman or, you know, reaching out to politicians that can support it. Um, and if there's anything else we can do, we're still an open channel for you guys. I just wanted you to know that. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. I did, I did also want to say, you know, reach out. We're really happy to engage with people and chat. If anybody has, you know, any questions or even suggestions, you know, we're, we're, we're here and we're really, really open to, to connecting. So okay. please do. And we hope that our contributions and uh, some of the sales proceeds from coal when it comes out will help you guys be a little more than two and a half because uh, I think that's what's needed. You guys need to grow and you need to get bigger and louder, louder than Ifra has been, if that's even possible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Ingrid. And we'll certainly keep in touch with you. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. I hope this episode brought some awareness to you and I hope that like me it has touched you in ways that you haven't been touched in a long time, made you more aware, made you more of a humanitarian. Um, I will not promote my products on this episode today. I will not give you any information about my products or about the method out of respect for the sensibility of the subject. I want to keep this episode um, as pure and simple as we are women, we are human, and we need to have empathy and we need to acknowledge what's happening around us, even if it's far. Um, so what I ask of you today is to get involved if you can. I've given as much respect as I could to this issue, this world issue, by really doing my due diligence and my research about which states do not have a legislation against FGM yet. Um, and the links are posted on the show notes. And if your state is one of those states, I urge you to write to your congressman. I urge you to reach out to um, the partnering foundation against FGM that is, you know, IFRA Foundation in Ireland and Europe's partner in the US. If you are in the US, if you are in Europe, check out IFRA Foundation. 
reach out to them, ask them all the questions you need to ask, donate, get involved, write letters, start petitions. Let's do something. I hope that like me, after you've heard this story, you feel so much gratitude for the freedom that you have been granted. And like me, I hope you feel so much more empathy for the rest of the world. I wish you a beautiful day, wherever you are. And I hope that together we can change the world.